happy to know that God loves you today and that he's got a plan for your life. Amen. Put those lyrics up there. Keep them up there, please. And that his love is sweeter than anything we've ever tasted. God, I just want to know your heart. Can we just sing that? Maybe just a little bit of keys, but mostly vocals. I just want to know your heart today, Jesus. Yeah, just like that as an attitude of prayer. that can you bless them one more time amen there's nobody like Jesus God bless you you may be seated welcome to church how many are glad to be in church today amen this is where I belong we're going to talk today about counting the cost somebody say count the cost amen turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14 Luke chapter 14 if you're new we hope that you get plugged into what God is doing in the church we're doing life groups all throughout the week. One is meeting even today. If you need more information, talk to anyone that's got a tag on or myself, anybody that can help you out. We're doing Bible studies. We started with the children. It's so funny because they're still deciding what they're going to do with the kids in schools, and some churches don't know what they're going to do. We had a bouncy house out here last Wednesday and was just hanging out with the whole neighborhood. So, I mean, the community has just got to think we've lost our mind if they don't think that already. So Wednesday programs are back up and running. Friday youth programs are up. And Bible studies are happening. No outbreaks. Going strong since April. No outbreaks. Amen. No sicknesses traced back here. And so either we're the most healthiest people you've ever met in your life or something's going on with what we're being told, okay? I believe it's real, but I believe that uh, for the most part, uh, COVID seems to be really with people who have preconditions and, and other kinds of issues, something similar to the flu. So we're not deniers here. Uh, we just think that it's worth the life to keep on going. And like I always say, if you want to wear a mask and stay six feet from me, you're more than welcome to do that. No one's going to force you to give me a hug or be close to me. You can be uh, Batman or Superman, whoever. No, who's the one that wears the mask? Batman, thank you. But he only wears it over his face, not over his mouth. There is a funny video of a guy going into a store doing that. He said, I do have a mask on, and he had a Zorro mask on. <laughs> oh, they were messing, he was messing with them. Okay, I want to encourage you today, but before I get into this message, I got to explain how I define encouragement. How many believe Jesus encouraged people? How many have been encouraged by Jesus and his words? If I was to go through the encouraging words of Jesus, they would literally take us all year. It would be a series in and of itself. Jesus saying to the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn thee. I mean, how many are just happy today about whatever sin you've been caught in? Jesus does not condemn you. But how many know it was just as encouraging to then say to her, now go and sin no more. Oh, see, it gets quiet when I preach like that. See, we want the encouragement of neither do I condemn thee. That is like right off the top. Everybody gives an amen to that. That's obviously encouraging. But I think it's just as encouraging for him to tell her, go and sin no more. 
I think it's encouraging that Jesus said that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And, and I believe that. How many believe that today? That God's love is so great. It's for the whole world, red and yellow, black and white. They are all precious in his sight. You know, small, big, female, male, old, young. I mean, we are all precious in his sight. But I also believe in that verse that it's encouraging to know that there's a perishing ahead for those who are not believing because that motivates me to believe. And I know for some of you that seems like that's wrong, you know, like we're just supposed to be motivated by God's grace, his love, his kindness alone. But that's not all what Paul said. Paul said, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade you to come to Christ. So we, we start we start with the love, the grace, the mercy. Heavenly Father wants to know all of us personally and intimately. And then if somebody goes, ah, I'm okay, I'm good, we have to go, hold on, hold on, <laughs> hold on. I'm not a used car salesman here. Uh, yeah, in some other places in life you can be good without receiving a pitch. But this is not a pitch you have to understand. If you do not believe, you shall perish. Because John 3.16 says that when we believe in him, we will not perish. Well, what's the opposite of that? If you don't believe, you perish. And so just go to the verse, if you could put it up, please. John 3.18. John 3.16 says if you don't believe, uh, you know, if you believe, you're not going to perish. But he explains it in verse 18 even clearer. Whoever believes is not condemned. How many believers do I have in the church today? Amen. But look at what it says. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So this is how uh, God is trying to change our perspective, change our worldview. If you think that humanity is born in a state of goodness, and it's only a few that get into a state of badness and need Jesus' help, then you're missing the message of the gospel. The, the, the message is that we start in a state of condemnation, guilt, and sin, and that it's only a few who accept forgiveness and receive salvation. But how many are encouraged by this? Amen. Can I get an amen if you're encouraged? <laughs> All right, well, let's go to Matthew 28, 19, just another one. How many are encouraged that we're to go into all the world, make disciples of the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything God has commanded us and that he's with us always until the very end of the age? How many believe that's encouraging? Have you ever heard what the end of the age looks like? You need Jesus, baby. Are you listening to me? After you read the book of Revelation and then you read Matthew chapter 24, which we don't have to get into it, it literally becomes hell on earth. God sends angels to destroy drinking water and the good ground and the, and the beast uh, are, are signative or, or they stand, stand for the nations rising up against God, beheading Christians. And then it says like locust demons come forth from the earth. I think these will be called aliens and that we'll somehow think we've connected to another dimension, but that's a different story. But my point is we read this and we're so encouraged, but then we read Revelation and oh, we get scared. We're supposed to be encouraged in Revelation, too. Have you ever watched the superhero movies, and when they start beating up the bad guys, isn't that encouraging? That's what's happening in the book of Revelation. If you don't want angels to drop asteroids on you, be on Jesus' side. Amen. If you don't want to be, uh, you know, if you don't want to be afflicted by the demonic spirits that look like locusts, live for Jesus. 
And so I could be here all day saying, wow, it's amazing. He doesn't condemn us. That's encouraging. And forget the other part. I could say, God loves us. And then forget the other part about perishing. And I could say, well, he's with us always to the end of the age. And forget all about Armageddon. But that's not what the Bible gives us as a full diet. We are to come to the Scriptures to be healthy, mature Christians. We are to understand that Jesus offered us so much hope and encouragement, but we are also to know that he has given us hard-hitting truth. Hard-hitting truth is a problem in our culture right now because they want everybody to get along by denying the truth of the Scripture. Now, I still want us all to get along. I have Muslim neighbors, Hindu neighbors. As a matter of fact, if you ever think about me, pray for my friend Saqib. Everybody say Saqib. Saqib is my Muslim neighbor who I spend time with quite often, enjoying fruit, the outdoors together. He is a devoted Muslim. I'm a devoted Christian, obviously, and we go back and forth, and we live at peace. But here's the thing. I don't have to deny the truth of the gospel to be Saqib's friend. As a matter of fact, the best kind of friend I can be to Saqib is a Christian who honestly believes what the Bible teaches. And then I can share with him how his beliefs differ with the Scripture. And then he can make a decision based on the information he's given. And, of course, we believe on the Holy Spirit leading and guiding his heart on what path he is going to follow. But it would be a great disservice to Saqib to not teach him the truth of Christianity. If every time he came over, if all we did was sing Kumbaya and talk about our similarities and encourage each other and talk about how we are both fathers who love our children, he has daughters, and they hang out with my daughters, if that's all we did, then I am not truly the best kind of friend. I mean, what if you had the cure to cancer? And every time your friend with cancer came over, all you did was talked about the flowers, talked about the weather, talked about how well their children were doing. Wouldn't that be a disservice? Wouldn't that be really hate if you looked at it? Like they would have to look at you at some point and go, really? You had the cure the whole time. How much did you hate me to not tell me? There's actually a post on YouTube, Penn and Teller, famous magicians in Vegas. There's actually a post on YouTube where Penn Gillette makes a video and talks about how a Christian gave him a Bible, told him about heaven and hell after one of his shows, and he had to make a YouTube video about it to express his gratitude because even as an atheist, he said, how much do you have to hate me to believe in a hell and not tell me or warn me about it? Now, I wish that all people were as consistent as Saqib, who actually likes me teaching him the differences. I wish everybody was like Pendulet, but they're not. So they're going to get upset with us. They're going to prefer their false unity, their false peace, and they're going to look at you as disturbing the peace. Like the person sleeping in a burning building and you're awoken by the smoke, you're knocking on the door. At the first moment of them awaking, what are they going to be? They're going to be upset. What are you waking me up for? Why are you disturbing me? But it's your job to tell them, I'm not just waking you up to borrow something or to hang out or to you know, play video games. I'm waking you up to tell you the building is on fire. Now they can have the chance to get out and be safe with you. And so sadly in our culture, if we go back to Luke 14, we have been conditioned to believe that Niceanity is equivalent to Christianity. And so we've drawn a box of what it means to be nice and left Jesus out. 
Actually, according to Oprah Winfrey, Jesus is not nice. Why? Because Jesus talks about things like perishing. Jesus talks about things like sin. Those are things you're not supposed to do if you're nice. And so now we have people who are literally walking around thinking they are more Christ-like than Christ. Like Jesus, if I was there, I would have done it differently. I wouldn't have told the woman to go and sin no more. I would have just said, try a little bit better, and if you need some help, I'll help you. But after all, nobody's perfect, so we're going to not expect much from you. you know. So just go about your way. We'll hang out and do coffee later. No, but Jesus said, go and sin no more. That's so like, like really bold, isn't it? That's really a strong statement to say. And then like with Jesus saying to people, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. Boy, Jesus, if I was there, I would have said, if you don't repent, life's not going to be good. You're going to have some oopsies. You're going to not be as happy as others. And so really repent just so you can be more happy in life. Whenever we develop a worldview or a system of beliefs or a cultural mindset that is different than Christ, this is, by definition, antichrist. And so a lot of times when we hear the term antichrist, it comes from the epistle of 1 John as well as the book of Revelation he's referred to there. We think of this antichrist figure who's like a cult leader. He is like Charles Mason, Man- Manson and, uh, you know, David Koresh all rolled up in one, Jim Jones, etc. But what we don't understand is in the first epistle of John, when he talks about an antichrist, it isn't those things. He says an antichrist is someone who denies the father and the son. In other words, he describes a doctrinal difference that is so off that it creates another version of Christ. Paul called this also another Jesus and another gospel. And there's so much that you can be deceived by in our day and age because another Christ doesn't look like Jim Jones. Another Christ doesn't look like David Koresh. Another Christ looks like the Christ of the Bible, but minus minus the controversy. Have you met that Jesus before? Or have you heard about that Jesus, I should say? Have you heard about a Jesus that doesn't judge? Have you heard about a Jesus that doesn't send anybody to hell? Have you heard about a Jesus that really doesn't want you to tell others their sins? I had a woman dropping the F-bomb yesterday telling me I wasn't a good Christian. So as she's dropping F-bombs, telling me I'm not a good Christian, you can find it on our video preaching at Logan Square, I then ask her, what is a good Christian? She says, a good Christian is just one who loves God and treats their neighbor as their self. I said, that's from the book of Matthew, right? I said, the same book of Matthew teaches me to keep his commands and teach them to others. A good Christian is not only somebody who just loves, that says, I love you, I'm here to help you and be nice to you, but it's also a person that teaches. How many believe that? And so if you're encountering in this culture a Jesus that doesn't teach, a Jesus that doesn't judge, a Jesus that doesn't correct, then you're dealing with a anti-Jesus, another kind of Jesus. And if you're not careful, that becomes deceiving. And then when I begin to read passages, everybody look at your neighbor and say, this is just the first introduction. I've got to warm you up even just for the passage because when I read you this passage, it is going to be, you can skip ahead, that's okay, but it's going to seem so anti your Jesus, you're going to think this is the anti-Jesus. Do you understand what I just said there? When we as Christians actually get to the nitty-gritty, the red letters of Jesus, in this generation, most of the time, 
it's going to seem so different than the Jesus they've been presented that they're going to think this is the anti-Jesus. This is the antichrist. Like we were talking about the mask with superheroes before. There's always like an anti-superhero, like Batman, then there's a bad Batman, then there's a Superman, an evil Superman, a good Spider-Man, a bad. Like they get tired of writing about these things, so they have to create some alternative world where now this one's a bad one. You guys have probably seen something like that or in a show. Well, what is the anti-Jesus? The anti-Jesus is a Jesus that looks and has similar characteristics of the real Jesus, but is against the things of God. Now, the second introduction is going to be shorter than the first because before I read this, I want everybody to get this. This does not give us permission to present Jesus in a way that is not a full Jesus because the Bible says he came full of grace and what? Truth. So just as much as we want the hard-hitting truth of Jesus, we should want the what of Jesus? The grace. And it's just as much as we want the grace, the forgiveness of Jesus, we should want the truth. So we call this the balanced perspective. Being balanced in the grace and truth, understanding that whatever hard-hitting truths we're giving to the people, it is for the sake of God's grace to be poured out upon them. So when I'm speaking to somebody about sins that they're defensive about, that they want to cover up, I'm not here to try to get them to uh, see that they're going to hell just for the, the sake of hell. I want them to understand and be awoken in their conscience to how God is going to judge them for for what purpose? For the loving kindness of God to wash over them, to transform them, and to change them. And that's why we'll oftentimes in our preaching bring back it to our testimony and say, hey, my sins might not have been your sins. My beliefs might not have been your beliefs. My lifestyle might have been different than yours. But I can tell you what, I was tore up from the floor up. I needed a checkup from the neck up. I was busted and disgusted. And Jesus Christ had to save me. And here's what he saved me from. And now he can save you. And so when we're presenting the Jesus of the Bible in all of his fullness, we are not doing it from a place of self-righteousness. We're doing it from the place of beggars who have been given the bread. Now we're telling all of the other beggars where the bread is at. We're doing it as a place of sinners who have been forgiven. And now we're telling all of our sinner friends that they can be forgiven too. And so the reason why I wanted us to have that introduction, because when we get to the sermon message today, count the cost, look at Luke 14, 25, large crowds are following Jesus. And why are they traveling and following with him? Because he's been healing, he's been encouraging, he's been feeding them. And now he turns to them, and this is what he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, come on, say it like you mean it, does not hate, thank you, his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, one thing about this passage is some of you might have been too quick to amen hating somebody. You might say, oh, I'm glad I can hate my wife, my spouse, my brother. I've been wanting to hate him for a while. Thank you, Jesus. I can hate him now. No, listen to me. We've got to understand a little bit different than the surface level here. First of all, Jesus is not going to contradict himself. He's already taught us to love and honor our mothers and fathers in the Ten Commandments. We also have been taught for wives and husbands to love and submit to each other, and obviously for parents to love their children. And so if we were to miss Jesus here, we were to make him into a contradiction. 
But there is a truth here that if we're not careful, we'll miss it. So in hopes of trying to understand this, you might see in some commentaries that people say, well, what Jesus actually means by the word hate is simply to love less. So you are to love less your life, your family, and all of these things in comparison to Jesus, i.e. hate. But that is not what he meant. The power is in the word hate. You have to catch what he is saying. And for all of us here who have read this passage, we might know where it's going. But let's pause to the things that I brought up in the introduction. If we read this to this generation, would this seem like the Jesus that Oprah's been presenting to them? No, this would seem like an anti-Jesus. Jesus is spreading hate. Jesus is telling us that there are these conditions of hate to be his disciple and that literally we have to carry around our electric chair. We have to carry around our lethal injection. We have to carry around that which is used to punish criminals. We have to carry our cross. Otherwise, we can't even consider ourselves his disciples. This is the anti of their Jesus. Why? Because their Jesus comes with no conditions. Now understand this, the love of God doesn't have a condition. Other gods, they have conditions. Allah only loves those who love him. And the, Krishna, uh, and the Hindu religion with Krishna and the different gods, they only love those who love them. So there is a condition on love. In our scriptures, we are taught that God is unconditional in this love, as we read in John 3.16, that the love of God covers all people unconditionally. But then what we wrongly do is we assume that since there are no conditions in God's love for us, that there are now no conditions whatsoever in our love back to him. In other words, we can unconditionally in our heart love him any way we want without a condition being placed upon it. Now, if you think about that into the terms of real world, that's sick and twisted. That way, a pedophile could love a child because it's based on their conditions. It's unconditional, not in the sense of what you think is positive. You see, unconditional love truly means God loves a pedophile. But what his condition is for the pedophile is if he wants to show him that he loves God or her that she loves God, they are to repent and demonstrate that love. Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commands, helping you through it right there. So listen, receiving God's love has no conditions on it, but those who say they love God have conditions. Otherwise, you could call anything love because it has no condition. The conditions placed upon God's love and the reason why he can blanketly love everyone is because God loves them way they are, but too much to let them stay that way. God's love comes with the power of transformation, not of approval. And so when we have love, we have to reflect it similar to God based on his commands. Otherwise, it's just meaningless emotion, a sense of the heart or verbalization of our feelings. And feelings come and go. Obedience and commitment is the definition or the condition of God's love. Now let's go back to this when it says hate because the opposite of hate is love. If you don't have both, you can't have the character of God. If all you do is love in life and you don't hate things, then you don't truly understand God's love. When God loves sinners, he hates what they do. Are you listening? God hates how sinners behave. The Bible literally says that God hates quite often in the Scripture. And the same thing has to apply to us as Christians. Now, to take this out of the context of a contradiction, what am I hating about a father? 
Am I hating the goodness of my father, the love of my father? No. I'm hating anything my father would do to separate me from God. I'm hating anything my mother would do to separate me from God. Are you tracking with me? I'm hating anything my wife, my children, even my own ideas that would keep me from God. I am hating that. So instead of looking back on my past as, oh, those were the days, I'm looking back going, I hate what that guy was, what that guy did, and what he stood for. I hate it. Now understand this, you cannot love and hate the same thing without being double-minded. So if you hate sin, you will love righteousness, and you won't make an excuse for sin, you will strive after righteousness. But if you hate righteousness and love your sin, you will stay away from the things of God, make all the excuses you possibly can to remain in sin. Now let's go back here to making it plain. Most of us in our culture would never have to apply this the way Jesus was meaning it. Why? Because most of us have been brought up with mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, children who look at the things of God as a benefit. Mother's Day in our church has more people. Why? Mothers are saying to their children, come with me. Let's worship God together. That's all I ask for Mother's Day. Same thing with baby dedications. We'll have more people here at baby dedications than on normal days. Why? Because people want to see the baby dedicated to the Lord. It's only now, as of this time recently, that in America, being a Christian actually is starting to make mothers mad. Are you tracking with me? When I was preaching at a high school and we started bringing the young people in, she went back to her parents and reported what we taught. She told her parents that we were teaching that homosexuality was a sin. The father said, I forbid you to go. See, that's new to our generation, isn't it? Because before, what was the parent doing? Go to church. I want you in church. But now going to church may cost you something. But what's been happening here just over the last few months and years has been happening around the world since the time of Christ. You see, on Mother's Day in China... The mothers don't want you to go to church with them. They want you to go to the Buddhist temple and make sacrifices for good luck. Now what do you do? You see, here is the difference between being sentimental and being spiritual. You see, sentimentalism will tell you, well, you know, it's just one day and I know Buddha's not real, and it would make my mom happy, so I guess I'll just go, light some candles, do some incense, say some prayers, do some things, you know, with the, the, uh, the, the prayer wheels, and you know what? It'll make mom happy. What is Jesus saying to that person? You better hate what mama's asking you to do. You better hate it. Or maybe now, in our culture, your brother's a homosexual, and you have his, uh, his best interests in mind. You're sentimental towards your brother. You love him. You care about him. And you've preached to him. You've expressed your love. But he's going on with his lifestyle. He's gotten engaged. Now he has a wedding ceremony coming up. And he's asking you, you know, as my sister, as my brother, come and support me. I've supported you. I've come to your church services. I was there when you were baptized. After all, it's just one little hour now, could you do that with a clear conscience? No, because don't you remember in weddings, they actually used to do the right thing and say, is there anyone here that objects? Because in a wedding, you form a congregation as a witness. Oftentimes, as a pastor, we'll say, before the witness is here, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Can you come to that service and be a witness to it? 
No, so what are they going to do? They're going to talk about you. They're going to say, oh, you know, what a hypocrite. We've done this for you. We've done that for you. But now you just can't even come to our wedding. What must you do at that moment, according to Jesus? You have to hate what your brother is doing. You have to hate what your family is doing. Right now in our culture, we are seeing the tide of popularity switch. So we've lost the culture war. They came out of the closet, pushed us in the closet, and now they're telling us, don't come out. And they're wanting to make us feel that if we don't go along with what they're doing, that we're not really good Christians. But we need to be able to remind them of a Jesus that told us to hate everything that gets in the way of following him. And whatever problems arise, it's okay. God's got a solution. Die to yourself. Carry a cross and die to the mother's affection that you once had and leaned upon because now your mother's using it to turn you against God. Die to her affection. Die to her approval. Die to your brother's approval. Pick up the cross. Say, right here is where I die to everything and anything that keeps me from Jesus. And it's not just that Jesus is being mean, saying he doesn't love mother, he doesn't love father, or even homosexual brother, or or Muslim neighbor. He's not saying he doesn't love them. He's just saying to you that you cannot save them by compromising the solution to the problem. It would be as if we're going to that example with the cancer patient, and they're your best friend, and now you finally get enough nerve to tell them that you have a cure for them, but now you hold some of it back. And so now the cure has lost its potency because you're not being true to the cure. Giving somebody a little bit of Jesus will not change all of their heart. We owe them all of Jesus. And so I say to you today, not to be mean, but to count the cost, lay down relationships. Like they say on the plane, put on your mask first, then put on somebody else's. You cannot come to Christianity for anybody else first. We don't come here just because it makes our spouse happy. We don't come here just because it makes our parents happy. We have to come here first and foremost because it makes Jesus happy. Worthy is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. He was worth it. He was worth it. Now what's beautiful about these passages is if I had time, the Bible says who's ever left, you know, your mother, brother, sister, and all of those things will receive more in this world. And so if you look around at this church and you see the older women as your mothers, the the women your age as your sisters, the brothers and fathers and all that, you will get more than what you've ever given up in the body of Christ. And we can still pray for our literal brothers and sisters and all of them to get saved. But we have to do it from the position of the character of God, not compromise. Because we haven't done them any favors by playing with a Nerf ball when the devil's playing the real game. How many know if I told you, man, I can dunk 360, and then you came to my house, and then I do it on a Nerf ball set about this side? How many know you'd be a little disappointed? And so we're coming to church, and we're saying all these little memes that, you know, God can make a way out of no way and all these things, but we're not really showing people we're playing the real game of life. We're making compromises. And that's why even in a church like this, when the shaking comes, we even lose, lose people here because they were coming for the rah, 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 shish, goomba. They were coming because a friend invited them or a family member, and they didn't have their real roots in Christ. And we need to get to the point that we're carrying the cross for Christ alone. 
And then I can say, hey, wife, honey, look what I'm doing. I'm carrying the cross by God's grace, and I can do all things who strengthens me, and greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. Because, by the way, that's when those scriptures make sense. You're not supposed to just pray, greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world when you're stuck in traffic. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Help me get out of this mess right now. Help me get good grades. Help me get a raise. Know when you, you know when you're supposed to say it? It's when your mother and father have forsaken you. You feel all alone. You're supposed to throw your hands up to Jesus and go, I'll never, you'll never leave me. You'll never forsake me. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. I can do all things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The Bible says in the end times that even brother will betray brother, parent will betray child, child will betray their parent. We've seen this in times of socialist nations, even during the time of Hitler's Germany. He would indoctrinate the children, have them tattletale on their parents. The Bible says in the end times it will be the same way. I saw a mom reading the Bible, soldier. Mom's reading the Bible. That's why we have to guard our children from the public schools. If you send them to a public school, think about them being like Daniel in Babylon. You have to protect and guard their worldview because the next thing you know, they may be coming home with birth control, calling themselves by a different gender name, and tattletailing on you to their teacher so that they can get removed from the house. Are you listening? We have to think of ourselves as people in exile. We are in Babylon. (laughs) We're not in Jerusalem anymore. Somebody say Babylon. We are in Babylon, and they have Babylonian ways, man. They want to take advantage of us. They want to use and abuse us. They want to lie to us. And so we have to be careful. Go to verse 28. Jesus gives us two examples. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't he first sit down, estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Once again, from the cultural standpoint, this sounds like an antichrist, doesn't it? Because Jesus now puts conditions upon what you call Christianity. He says Christianity is something you're building in your life. Everybody get this. And at any point, you can walk away from what God is building. This is why I believe you can lose your salvation, not as you would lose a set of keys by accident going, whoopsie, where's Christ in my life? But that like Judas, you can make a decision to walk away. Christ himself said it. Think about it. What does he say here? What is the kingdom of God like? Building a tower. You're building it. The foundation is laid through Christ. He's the rock. And you're seeing Christ build up the rooms of your house. He's fixing the broken parts. He's making you complete. He's giving you the right reason and the right uh, definition of relationship. He's guarding you and putting up walls and barriers. But at some point, if you or I were to look at what Jesus was building in our lives going, I don't value that room called marriage anymore. I value this girl at the gym and what I call a hookup. I don't value putting Christ before my children's sports. My biggest goal for them is to go to college and get a scholarship through baseball. What do we begin to do? And once again, I'm not saying it's trivial, but it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. Over time, Jesus says there is such a person, everybody get this, that had a real foundation, had a real building, but then walks away while it's incomplete. And they are ridiculed. And I remember being a backslider myself. The church that I was with wanted to do things at the high school I was attending. 
and I felt that I was supposed to be a leader, and they chose somebody else over, the, over me, and I became church hurt. How many people have been church hurt? Okay? There's, there's a real thing called church hurt. And so I got my feelings hurt, and I said, I'll show them. And you know what I did that night? I went and did drugs, went back to my lifestyle. And so here I am, shooting craps, drinking a 40, getting high. I know that's crazy to imagine me living such a lifestyle like that, but that was me. And so I'm shooting craps, and I'm losing all my money. And then I take off my beanie. If anybody remembers Cypress Hill, these kind of rappers of the 90s, that's who I was trying to be like. And so I take off my beanie, and this is what I say. How much will you give me for this? And my friend looks back at me saying, man, what happened to you? Didn't you used to be a Christian? I literally lost everything gambling that night, and it took my friend to ridicule me in a sense, to say, what happened? Now, of course, they accepted me afterwards, and your friends will accept you back into their, into their group if you want to be a sinner just like them. Birds of like feathers flock together. But notice the ridicule that comes. Even the sinner recognizes, you tried, but you failed. You're no better than us. You're just like us. I've done Christianity too, or I was locked up, or I was raised that way. I tried it at a hard time in my life, and now we are the same. And the Bible says that this person has not counted the cost. So ask yourself this question. What did you come to Christianity for? What did you come for? Because if you're not going to get something in Christianity, are you leaving? Like, did you come to Christianity so that you could get a good, good life? Will you now leave when you have a bad life? What did you come to this church for? Did you come to this church so that you could just be spiritual a couple times a week? Because what are you going to do when you look at our reviews now being under four? We're at like 3.4. I think they're trying to get us down to one. Anybody who has not reviewed us on Google, please do so. The common words that come up, you can see it on Google, is cult. Well, people left our church because of that. <clears throat> Pastor. I'm a leader in my community. People I service in my business will know that I go to this church. I need a church with a better reputation. I've heard people say that to me. Now they're ashamed of us. Have I sinned against you? Have I stolen from you? Have I slept with someone other than my wife? Have I taught you a false doctrine? No, all that happened was for a few months or a few weeks, they put a spotlight on this church, and everybody said, cult, cult, cult. And now somebody says, well, I guess it's done enough. I'm just going to walk away from this. Dropped life groups. We had a worship album that was recorded before COVID, spent thousands of dollars, recorded it here. You guys would have loved it, all you folks that have come since then. Gone, delete. Ah, that's good enough. I'll find another church to complete that at. Oh, really? Is that how God does things? Well, you know what? We weren't really meant for each other, and now this one is really meant for me, and so I'm just going to hit reset. Now, listen to me. There can be divorces and all of that, but how quickly do people just say, ah, it's half-built here. I'll just start somewhere else. I love what the old-time gospel singer Keith Green said. You can run to the end of the highway and still not find what you're looking for because what you're looking for is in Jesus. But if you're trying to change yourself or by yourself, you'll never fix yourself. Every place you go, you'll be. 
And so Jesus is warning us here, not, everybody get this, not that salvation, it's now you coming out with your hard hat on and you're saying, I got it from here, Jesus, I'm going to build my life now. No, it's saved by grace to be God's workmanship, to do the good works by grace. It's all by grace. It's one whole big message of grace from beginning to end. But notice that you have to allow the grace of God to continue building. It's saying, God, I'm, I, I, I'm looking at situations. I don't know how we're going to build through this. I don't know how it's going to work out, but God, keep building in me. And God, if the one thing you're going to build in me right now is steadfastness, then I won't quit, Jesus. I won't quit. I'll trust you. Lord, if you're going to build in me courage, even while my knees are shaking, then Lord, give me courage. And sometimes you don't feel like you're making progress. Because sometimes we look at the building of our lives like a stair step to success. Well, I got saved at this age, started dating at this age, got married at this age, had kids at this age, and it all just worked out. Here I am, successful. How many of you have ever did that? You might have thought it, but life doesn't work out like that. Step one, step two. What does life oftentimes feel like? It feels like God is doing to connect the dots with you. You're over here, now you're over here, and we're going to go backwards for a little bit. Then you're going to go forward, and you're going to go backwards again. You're going to go forwards, you're going to go backwards, forward, backwards, forward, and then there's going to be grass. Look at that. And you step back, and you go, oh, I get it now. There was grass, and then a flower came out. But I had to go up and down, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. One day we'll be out of a storefront church. One day, one day we'll make it out of here. Right when we're about ready to bust out the seams, COVID happens. You get what I'm saying? But God says, nope, people are here for the wrong reasons. We're going to take a step back. God will do that in your life. You might be thinking, God, we should be working on the kitchen. We should be working on the kitchen. And God says, no, I'm working on the bathroom. I'm working on the bathroom. And then he goes, then we'll go back to the kitchen. Well, I thought we were going to finish the bathroom. Now we're going to work on the kitchen. And you have to trust God in the process. Somebody say there's a purpose in the process. You count the cost. I'm in it till it's over, Jesus. Verse 31. He then says, suppose a king is about ready to go to war with another king. He says, won't he first sit down, consider what he is able to do with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming with 10 or, or 20,000. He's got 10,000. The other one's got 20,000. If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. How many know that's smart? We can't win this. But verse 33 says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up, how many things? How many things? Everything. You cannot be my disciple. Would you highlight that, please? Jesus now takes it out of the building illustration, and he says, this is like going to war. Your life is like being at war. If you are not ready for that next step of your life, it is better to compromise instead of being destroyed. And you say, well, what does compromise mean in this illustration? The compromise is sending a delegation and those who are stronger, better, and more wise than you to help you until you're ready for those next phases. But you don't disband your kingdom, run away scared, and say, ah, I'm not a king anymore. If you ever feel overwhelmed in life like you can't win the battle, you send a delegation. So what did that mean even in a time like with our church with COVID? We said, hey, if you need to take time off, that's okay. But that wasn't good enough, right? They had to get out and quit and say, I don't even know Metro Praise. Metro Praise who? You know? But listen, we don't quit on our calls. 
Even if at time we feel like we're not ready, God says we are. We know we're more than conquerors. Doesn't that have a new meaning now? I'm more than a conqueror over COVID. I'm more than a conqueror over the government. I'm more than a conqueror over what they're saying about us, right? So you take that personal now. But watch. If you need a delegation, what is the delegate? The delegate is someone to help to encourage. So if you say, man, pastor, you're asking us to do a lot in this church. I want to be an on-fire Christian, but I don't know if I'm ready to make that leap yet. Okay, we'll be your delegate. We call this discipleship. We'll help work this out with you. We'll help you see what it's like when we pimp slap the devil. Amen? We've been pimp slapping him for a long time. We'll give you some encouragement as we pimp slap him. Tell you our testimonies, because we've been where you've been in a lot of ways. Not anybody, you know, no one can walk in your shoes exactly. But we've been through some stuff here. But notice, once you know, you can take on that person. What, what is the underlying assumption there? That once you've sat down and said, we're not delegating, we're not offering terms of peace in this, we're going to war, Jesus is saying, you give up everything now. When you go to war, it's real. I was talking to my pastor, Brother Anthony, about his sons, and all of his sons are in ministry. He has four boys. Three of them are married with children. The other one is a little weird, Josiah. Pray for Josiah. Some single ladies here, look him up online, Josiah Freeman. He's in his 20s, a little weird, but maybe you're a little weird, and we can connect that together. That would be awesome. little Chicago-New Orleans connection. But all of his boys are on fire. They love Jesus. And we were talking about this illustration out of Saving Private Ryan, if you've seen the movie. And how these men, most of them were so young, and they're in life and death situations. And he said, there's a scene that stuck with him and scarred him as he thought about, like Josiah, this young, quirky, young, this young man. That at one point in the hand-to-hand combat, the American soldier is losing, and the German is putting the knife in him. And he starts to say, mother, mommy, you know, cries out for his mom, somewhat similar to like George Floyd. And as the knife is coming into him, the guy puts his hand over his mouth and says, shh, and kills him. See, that's what war looks like. Satan, listen to me, my friends, has come to steal, kill, and destroy. He doesn't care if you're the quirky, nice one. It doesn't matter. You are in a war with him that is beyond you. It is about the war of souls. And when he looks at you, he hates you. And whatever compromise you try to make with him, like like Beyonce doing whatever she's doing, pray for her. Amen. Kanye came out with Christ as king. She came out with black as king. Kanye's repping the cross. She's putting on goat horns. What has happened? Hello. Can I get an amen? We need to pray for what's going on in our culture. But listen, there is no middle ground. If you need a delegation, people to pray and stand up for you and fight with you, we're here to do that and to help you. But when it comes to you stepping out on that battlefield, Satan wants to kill, steal, and destroy. Starting with stealing, what does he do? He steals the promises of God. He says, God didn't say that. I want to steal that from you. God didn't mean that. God doesn't have this for you, so he steals the promises. And then what does he do? He kills the purpose. 
He kills the purpose of relationship, kills the purpose of money, kills the purpose of your gifts and your goals and your dreams. And then as if that wasn't enough, he then destroys you and he wants you to suffer with him. He is jealous that you are made in the image of God and that God has saved you when angels only got one chance and they're already condemned. He is upset. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And here's the thing. You have to give up everything for Jesus so you get the victory. Because get it here, get it. Anything you leave in your life, Satan comes and has it as a hook. Well, I'm just going to leave this thing called a bad relationship. And what does the devil do? He just comes and he's just going to get you by that. Well, I'm just going to leave this little thing called pornography. Well, I'm just going to leave this little thing called my job, you know. My job, my job, you know. Oftentimes, I just want to say back to Christians when they talk about my job, just say my Buddha because that's how you're treating this thing. Oh, holy job, I will never offend you. I will put meals before you every day, oh, holy job. I'm not saying that Jesus wants us all to live on a commune and and sew our own clothes, but some of you got to get some spiritual cojones and tell your job what your purpose is there. Your purpose is to do what God brought you there to do. Do not let a job be the excuse. Do not let the job be the excuse because there will be no excuses on Judgment Day. There will only be, the Bible says, the things that are burned up that we We're cowardly and unwilling to deal with here. God says those things will burn up. And then lastly, everybody get this in closing. Uh, Vinny, would you come please? Jesus said, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Hold that last statement, please. Just go to the passage, my brother. Would you scroll down so the the ending there, just keep scrolling. There you go. Salt is good, But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Now watch verse 35. If it is neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile, it is thrown out. Or it is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. This is where we run into that idea of an anti-Jesus again. Jesus literally said this. Everybody get this. It's in parabolic language, but what is the literal application? That if you lose your saltiness, you're not even worth being thrown on poop. You're not even worth being thrown on dung. I had to research this because I'm like, what are these crazy people doing salting their dung? Now, don't you look at me like this is not a good question because if you didn't come up with that question, you're not reading the Bible because it says... If you can't put it on soil and you can't put it on manure, I'm like, "Eh, why are we putting it on manure? Like, when did that become an idea? You know, I'm just going to salt this up here right here. Why are we doing this, Jesus? I'm not from this culture. I don't understand why we're salting the manure. I know about salson. I know about cayenne pepper. Come on, somebody. I know about sofrito. I know about goya. I know about, you know, oregano from my Greek family. I know about this, but I don't know about salt on manure. I don't know about that. So I had to look this up. And if I say it wrong, please forgive me for trusting a commentator. But from what they explained to me was that the manure used in fertilization had to have some type of purity to it. Otherwise, any old kind of bacteria could grow there and other animals could plant things in there and do crazy stuff with it that wasn't meant to be done. That's the best I can give you right now. But, But does this sound like the Jesus of our culture? 
if you don't do this, I'm not even going to throw you on manure. You're not even fit for that. How in the world can we compute this Jesus with the world's Jesus? It's not even in the same ballpark. Jesus is literally saying, you're not even worth me throwing you on dung. You can't even be used for that. So, so the term that we have for this is worthless. And then in closing, and I'm playing the soft music because I want it to go easy on your hearts here because this is hard to hear for some of us. How could the God who so loved the world say at one point we are worthless? In one translation, it actually says you're just worthless. Well, God, I thought I was worth the blood of Jesus, and I thought you loved me so much that if there was just one, you would die for me. You would leave the 99 to come for me. How in the world do we get to that point now to worthless? Because if we lose the purpose for what we were created for, This is the thing that the real Jesus says. The real Jesus says, if you don't want what I'm offering you, you are worthless to what I'm doing. And you will get cast out into outer darkness. Outer darkness is worse than being used as fertilizer. Outer darkness, there is no more chances to do anything good. Even salt, I mean, come on, get this. Even salt on manure does good in God's good green earth. But in the kingdom to come after judgment, you don't even get to be the salt on the manure. Don't even get to do that. You're cast out. You're not even in the kingdom. And so I look at this as once again a challenge to my Christian faith. God, what makes me salty? What keeps me salty? Obviously not an attitude because he's not talking about this kind of salty. He's talking about a saltiness that produces purity, a saltiness that preserves, right? Preserves, purifies. And so as I look at my heart and I put this all together, I'm just going to start with me and then I'm going to ask you to pray. What, What it says to me is that I have to keep my motives pure that I'm not in Christianity to get something from Christianity, that I am in Christianity because of Christ, and that I am following Jesus, not because of my mother, not because of my family members, though those may be great things that come as a secondary consequence, but first and foremost, it is to God be the glory. And so it's Jesus when I rise. It's Jesus when I go to work. It's Jesus when I go to bed. Come on, somebody. It's Jesus in a hard time. It's Jesus in a good time. It's Jesus when they love me. It's Jesus when they hate me. It's Jesus on a five-star review, and it's Jesus on a one-star review. It's Jesus when I feel good, and it's Jesus when I'm in the hospital. It's Jesus when I got money, and it's Jesus when I'm broke. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Come on, stand up and say his name if you love him. Come on, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, all of us, for all of you, Jesus. Band and altar worker, would you come, please? Because that's what I wanted to ask you at the end today, and I didn't want to skip ahead. Brother, if you could put it up, thank you for all your help today, is that we have to count the costs because Jesus is the pearl of great price. Jesus is worth it all. As we get ready to close out, we're just going to pray for a little bit. Would you search your heart with this message in mind? First and foremost, in an attitude of prayer, have you been a Christian? 
Are you a Christian? Are you the kind of Christian God wants you to be? If you've never been a Christian, confess Jesus today as the Lord of your life and confess then your sins, those things you've done that he never wanted you to do and receive forgiveness, be born again spiritually. If you are a Christian and you're looking at some of the weaknesses of your life and you could see that these things are tempting to you to quit or to walk away, would you right now offer the Lord your building once again? Offer the Lord your army in these examples. Offer the Lord your salt and say, use me for your glory. Oh God, show me the reason why I've been discouraged and wanted to quit. Oh Lord, change my heart. Help me to see the purpose in these processes. And Lord, if I need delegation, send a delegate my way. There's only one mediator between you and God and man, Jesus. I'm not saying you need a priest. I'm just saying if you need help in the journey, someone to encourage you to go through those promises again so you don't give up and for them to encourage you with their testimony. And then lastly today, if you're saying, man, I'm all in. Pastor, I'm doing this. But I'm just concerned about those around me. I see a generation falling away, people close to me. Would you just start to pray for them as well? So right now, in an attitude of prayer, everybody praying. If you need help accepting Christ or as a Christian, you need to get delivered from some stuff. As we start to worship, these prayer workers will pray with you in whatever way you feel safe. But we're going to close out today singing, I surrender all. It's an oldie but goodie. And I encourage everybody here to surrender all. And no matter what you may need prayer for, if I didn't mention it, please even come forward. But we're going to sing it and then dismiss formally. Please be patient and make this message relative to your life. Amen. I surrender all. I surrender. verse again all to Jesus whoever needs prayer come on up nobody's judging we're just here to help and encourage Jesus is worth it all I will ever love and trust him